our speaker, Dr. Mark Tatlock. He is Senior Vice President and Provost of the Master's College in Santa Clarita, California, a wonderful liberal arts college. When uh, he comes, you'll perhaps notice that he may seem just a little young for that sort of uh, responsibility, but uh, in fact, he came by it very, very honestly. Mark came to the Master's College as a student in 19. 87, and uh, as it turns out, that's the year I came as a professor, but he never left. He, uh, he was a student, then he, he, he was a resident uh, director in the dorms during his seminary training, then he came back to the college as uh, dean of men and then dean of students and vice president of student life, and then three years ago when the college was looking for someone to give it day-by-day leadership, how uh, the Lord led them to Mark. And uh, he has brought such a spirit of oneness and just it's a delight to be around that campus with what he has brought to it. He's a man of selflessness and integrity and uh, he's a man whose heart beats strong for world missions and and whose heart beats strong as well to bring Christians face to face with their responsibility with regard to the ministry of adoption. He and his wife Lisa have five children. Two of them God gave them biologically. The other three God gave them to Mark and Lisa by adoption. They have a daughter from China and a son and a daughter from Uganda. So uh, listen as you listen. Understand that this is a man who gives his life to instructing young people in how to integrate their Christianity into all of their life. He's a man who understands that his uh, vocation is even more important than his profession. So I'm glad to introduce Dr. Mark Tatlock. Well, good morning. It's great to be in the Lord's house. Amen. I uh, consider it a great privilege to be with you as part of your summer series. I've been looking forward to uh, my visit to this coast and uh, to see some old friends again. Doug, thank you for your introduction. I do want to extend greetings to you from our president, uh, Dr. John MacArthur. He's uh, familiar with your ministry here and praises God for what he's doing in your midst and uh, through you uh, in your community and around the world. So uh, I'm looking forward to going home and telling him about my experience here, and it's already been a a great encouragement. So uh, we want you to know we're thinking about you uh, from the West Coast, and uh, if there's anything we can do to support and encourage your ministry here, it would be our great joy. Well, it is a privilege for me to participate in the summer series, and uh, I, I considered it a unique opportunity to do something maybe a little less traditional than a usual three-point sermon out of one singular text. I'd like to talk to you as an audience of church members who I believe God has uniquely gifted and called to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I look at an audience of people who I also have to admit are lay people. Most of you have not been called into what we usually refer to as full-time Christian ministry. You have been called into the world through very specific realms of uh, professional responsibility. In addition, uh, there are many moms in the room who now uh, see as their primary calling to uh, love and care for their children, some of you even homeschooling uh, in your own homes. And I want to speak to you from God's Word about your particular calling and how God can use you in a unique fashion to bring glory to his name. I've entitled my sermon, Calling and Kingdom Impact. Calling and Kingdom Impact. And the subtitle of my sermon is Rediscovering the Doctrine of Vocation. Rediscovering the Doctrine of Vocation. 
The doctrine of vocation is something that was developed by the early reformers, those who were bringing to the, uh, what existed then as the Catholic Church, a pure interpretation of the scriptures with regard to soteriology and salvation, a high view of scripture, a commitment to Christ and Christ alone as the means for uh, our redemption, the need for us to faith, uh, put our faith fully in God, and a love for God's word as a singular authority in our lives. And the Reformers, as they focused on the issue of soteriology, also recognized that there were other issues within the Catholic Church that needed to be confronted because they were unbiblical. And one of those issues had to do with this false dichotomy that existed within the church between a view of the clergy and the laity. In the Catholic Church at this point, uh, the role of the priest had been hijacked, if you will, had been taken out as a position that had been intended for service towards the people in the church and was now being used for their own personal advantage. And the reformers confronted this. But the abuse of the priest to create this clergy-lady distinction led to a, a false understanding of most Christians in the pew as to what their responsibility and calling in the world was. Now, there is no doubt, Scripture is very clear, that for those men who are called to be pastors, it is a noble and a high calling. Yet, the Scriptures are as clear that it is also a high and noble calling that God has called each person to in every sphere of life. And this is what I'd like to speak to today is this idea of the doctrine of vocation. The Reformers were insistent that our God is a God who is sovereign over all things. And that he had a perfect plan and intention for every one of his creatures to glorify him. Now the handout that you have, it's uh, not just an outline or a fill in the blank. It's actually a list of quotations from theologians as it relates to this doctrine of vocation. And the last long quotation there is actually by John Piper, who many of us are familiar with. And John Piper, in pastoring his church there in Minneapolis, realized that many people in his church congregation don't have a clear mission for their lives. And so you'll see there that he begins to wrestle with this idea, saying that many of you who've been serving maybe as an accountant or as an educator or maybe in law enforcement or maybe uh, in music or, or whatever field the Lord has called you to may still be wrestling with this question, what is eternal about my calling? What significance can I have with regard to the advancement of God's kingdom and his redemptive plan? Now, this gets personal for us at the college because I work with typically 18 to 21-year-old. And about the time a student turns into a senior, especially their second semester, getting ready to graduate, it's amazing how they become very concerned with answering the question, what is God's will for my life? They're about to embark on hopefully a career trying to find that first job that they'll go into. And now they become very concerned that God may be withholding or concealing an understanding from them of what his will is. Well, when I talk to these students, I have to take them back to this uh, reformed understanding of God's sovereignty. Let me share a few verses with you to just frame this. Job, finding himself in the middle of a real crisis in life, having lost everything that was important to him, in Job chapter 10, verse 8, makes this wonderful statement in his prayer to God. He says, your hands have formed me and shaped me. What an amazing statement. Have you thought about that? 
that God uniquely created you? The psalmist understood this. In Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16, he writes this. In his prayer to God, he says, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. And the complexity that he's referring to is not just our physiological complexity. There's no doubt that our human bodies are incredibly complex and a testimony to the Creator. But what the psalmist is saying is who I am as a person is complex, not only physiologically, but also in the unique collection of talents and gifts and abilities and interests and passions and life experience that you have brought together in me. And so he says, Lord, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It is amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous. What a wonderful statement. We are God's workmanship. Matter of fact, that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a reference to God's sovereignty, to eternity past, God knowing exactly what his design was for each of us. In Psalm 139, the psalmist goes on to say, you were there while I was being formed. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. So we are God's workmanship, wonderfully complex and unique, every one of us. But it has been by God's sovereign hand that he has created us. The psalmist says on another occasion, you knit me in my mother's womb. So when I'm talking to a 21-year-old college senior who is in despair, that somehow God has been asleep, And he's going to have to arouse God through his prayers to somehow figure out what his will is for this student. I simply remind them of these texts and say, God's not been asleep. Matter of fact, before you were even awake and alert, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, God had a design on your life. Now what that does is it reframes your view of your life in a really exciting way. So when I talk to this graduating senior, I'll begin to ask them a series of questions. What are you studying? Why did you pick that major? What are your passions? But I'll ask them a different set of questions. I'll ask them, what are your natural talents and abilities? I may have some guy who's studying to be an accountant, but he spent the summers um, putting roofs on houses. And so when you understand God's sovereignty, you realize that skill set of putting a roof on a house is something that God allowed for him to develop. It's not a skill I possess, but it's something that he's given to this young man. So what natural abilities and talents do you have? What are your passions? What do you just love to do? You love to read? You love to surf? What are the passions? If you had a free day, you could do anything you want with The one caveat, you couldn't send. But you could do anything you want. How would you spend that day? Answer that question in your own mind right now. What do you love to do? You love to bake? You love to garden? You love to surf? See, when you understand God's sovereignty, you step back from your life and you have a broader framework from which to identify all that God has built into your life and continues to cultivate Next week, you may have some new talents or abilities or passions that God fosters and he brings into your life. But it's not just those items. There are other experiences that God affords us. Educational experiences. And all the young folks who are in school today, you know that class that you really don't like right now? Guess what? 
God knows that you're in that classroom. And if you don't like that subject, it's okay. It may not be your favorite subject, but one day, one day God may let you use something you learn in that subject to do something really neat for him. So when you go to school tomorrow and you think about God being sovereign, all of a sudden school gets real exciting. Even the subjects you don't enjoy, you can have confidence that God's got you there for a purpose. And adults and friends, that's true of life experiences. Some of you have been through crises and experiences. And you ask the question, God, why me? Why are you allowing me to go through this? But if you understand God's sovereignty and that his ultimate plan and purpose for us is to bring glory to him, it may be he's allowing you to go through a crisis for a specific reason that will equip you to uniquely minister and serve through the body of Christ and to reach out into the community of your world in a way that nobody else could do like you. I get excited at the start of my day about what God's going to do. Because I think about the things that he's going to bring in my life today are things that I can steward for his glory and for his kingdom. Now having said that, we need to think about this doctrine of vocation. I want to begin by a text of scripture that Doug opened to us and read in Matthew chapter 5. I want you to take your Bibles there and open up. And look at this text. We refer to it as a Sermon on the Mount. The verses that Doug read, we refer to as the Beatitudes. And they're a wonderful listing of the descriptors of what should be true of disciples of Christ. Matter of fact, the word blessed can be translated happy, but it still doesn't capture the full connotation of what the word blessed means in the Old and New Testament. Matter of fact, if you come to uh, Galatians chapter 3, Paul is making a reference to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Paul says what God is saying is that blessing is salvation. This is God's redemptive plan throughout history that he's been working out ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. See, uh, Piper's correct when he says missions exist because worship does not. What he means by that is the only way God can receive more worship and glory is by more people coming to faith in Christ and surrendering their lives to worshiping him and glorifying him. So why do we do missions and evangelism? Is we want to win more worshipers to the king. That's our motivation. Now the side benefit is they don't go to hell. But you know the ultimate purpose in missions and evangelism isn't for your benefit or mine. God in his grace allows us to go to heaven and to dwell with him eternally. But the ultimate purpose of the gospel and the ultimate purpose of missions and evangelism is that God is worshipped. Now having said that, God wants us to live in a fashion that reflects his character and nature to the world. If you look at the Beatitudes, we see some of that evidenced. Those who are redeemed, those who are blessed, should be people who are gentle and gracious, people who are merciful and compassionate, people who are pure in heart, people who are peacemakers, meaning that you practice the granting and seeking of forgiveness when there's a conflict or a broken relationship. Isn't that a wonderful testimony of what God's done on our behalf? Who's the ultimate peacemaker? God. He sent Christ into the world to do what? To reconcile us to him. And God grants forgiveness, and he makes peace with sinful men. Dear friends, this is what he calls us to do. He calls us to reflect his character and his nature in a lost 
and fallen world. Well, I want you to look down with me. If you understand that the Beatitudes provide us an opportunity to understand what the disciple is to be in this world, as somebody who reflects the character and nature of God, then you read these verses, verse 13 through 16, in a whole new light. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. He switches metaphors here from salt to light. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Listen carefully, verse 16. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now let's reflect for just a moment about the teaching here about being a light. What's the purpose of light? To confront or combat the darkness. Why? It's very practical. To create a path. Okay? Now when you think about this simple text where Christ says we as believers are to be a light in the world, he says you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now that seems obvious to you. If you're in a dark house, you can't find your way, you strike a match or light a candle, or in this case an oil lamp, wouldn't it be foolish to put it on a table and cover it with a basket? Because the light then cannot fulfill its function, its purpose, and its mission. You can't do it. Because the light then does not penetrate the darkness. It is of no effect. Now, in the Jewish household, they would have candlesticks or candelabras, and they would light these lamps, and they would elevate them. This way, you would have the maximum exposure to the light in a dark room. And what Christ is saying here is we need to understand that God is going to create platforms for us to shine as bright lights in a dark world. Let us not be people who conceal ourselves and hide ourselves. And the light that we shine is referred to here as good works. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Well, let me help you understand biblically what good works means. Okay? It begins the, with the work of salvation. Now we know that in the fall, man chose to do what? Dethrone God and elevate himself as the object of worship. Okay? Man became a self-lover, not a God-lover, but a self-lover. And when we become self-lovers, we automatically cease to love those around us. It's inconsistent or incompatible. If you're totally dedicated to worshiping and honoring and loving yourself, you can't also love your neighbor. Right? So those of us who were redeemed and impacted by the fall were self-lovers. So God brought the gospel into our lives. And the work of sanctification is this. It is restoring us back into what Genesis 12 referred to as image bearers. Remember that text? Genesis chapter 2 where God said, let us make man in our own image. Now this is a plural pronoun that's being used. It's the Trinity here that is being referred to. Let us, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, make man in our image. Now let me ask you a question. Were we created 
in essence, to be exactly like God? Well, not in essence. We are the created beings. There's only one true God. So we are not omniscient, omnipotent. Okay? We're not omnipresent. We are not God in essence. We will never be. We don't have the capacity to be that. So what does it mean then to be created in the image of God? This is a critical question for us to wrestle with. What it means to be made in the image of God is to reflect those attributes of God that are evidence in relationship within the Trinity. Theologians refer to this as inter-Trinitarian love of God. It's what's expressed in relationship. God entrusted with man the capacity to represent his character and nature in what theologians refer to as the communicable attributes of God. Do you know what those are? Let's think about them for a moment. God's a God of love, God of justice, and mercy, and compassion. He is a God who grants forgiveness. He's long-suffering. He makes peace. Wow. Those are the communicable attributes of God. Don't they sound incredibly familiar when you read Galatians chapter 5? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? What is God doing in sanctification and the, the, the Holy Spirit's work within us? He is restoring us back to a place where we can once again reflect the image of God. And it's expressed in relationship with others. These are the good works that the scriptures talk about. And Matthew 5.16 is very clear. As we live in this way in a fallen world, we shine as bright lights. When someone sees us demonstrate mercy and compassion towards our neighbor, who does it point to? It points to God, our Father. As a matter of fact, the language uh, in the Old Testament given to the nation of Israel following the Exodus is that they became known as the children of God. Today, we as church members are known as what? Children of God. Matter of fact, the whole language of the church is familial language. Christ is the firstborn. We're the adopted children. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're brothers and sisters. God's our Father. All this language in the Scripture defining the church describes this, this intimate family relationship that we possess. And so the qualitative nature of our relationships with each other becomes the platform in which we demonstrate the character of God. Now hang on to that. I want to give you another little piece of uh, background here. When God called out the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt, we find in Exodus chapter 19, Moses going up to Mount Sinai just to meet with God. And Moses comes back down from Mount Sinai, and all of us are thinking, yes, he's got those tablets in his hand, the Ten Commandments. But you know the first thing that Moses said to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 19? He gave them their mission statement for life. God instructed Moses to say to the nation of Israel, we find this in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 7, he says, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now what does that mean? Help me out. What's the job description of a priest? A priest serves the role of mediating between who? Sinful men and holy God. Right? That's his job. And God gives the nation of Israel this beautiful, elaborate visual aid of this principle when they build the tabernacle. And he gathers all the 12 tribes together and he selects one tribe, the tribe of Levi, out of all 12 and says to them what? You are going to function as a priestly 
tribe. And the job of the Levites were to mediate. You had the whole sacrificial system, but it was through the mediation that man's sins were forgiven by perfect and holy and just God. So God tells Moses to say to the nation of Israel, you are to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests? What is he saying to them? He's saying, the Israelites, I have chosen you out of all the people groups of the earth. All the Gentile nations, I have chosen you and set you apart for a priestly role. That means the blessing of the covenant and the relationship with God was never to be consumed by the Israelites for their own limited benefit. They were to become instruments or vehicles or, if you will, ambassadors for Jehovah in the world. And then he goes on to say to them, you are to be a kingdom of priests and what? A holy nation. Now why is that important? How can you fulfill your priestly role declaring the wonderful gospel and glory of God and his mercy and compassion and his love and the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation? if you yourself don't live in a fashion that's consistent with that message. And so he says to them, now you need to live in a holy fashion. Matter of fact, beginning in Leviticus chapter 11, all through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, one key statement is repeated. God says, you are to be holy. Why? Why? For I am holy. It's a representative responsibility. He doesn't say, be holy so you have a great Christian life and feel better about yourself, and you have a great walk with God, there's a purpose statement to God's holiness being entrusted to us. He says, you be holy for I am holy. We are sent into this world as his representatives. Okay, so if you understand that in the nation of Israel, now you come to Exodus chapter 20. And what do we find there? The law, the Ten Commandments. And what the law did is it functioned to guide the Israelites in their priestly role to live holy lives before the idolatrous pagan people of the world according to God's moral standard and character. That's what the law does. Let me illustrate it for you. Let me do it from the New Testament. Christ said in Matthew chapter 22, when asked this great question, how can one fulfill the law? And what is the greatest commandment? What does Christ say? He says, the entire law can be fulfilled in this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, by the way, note what is obviously missing. There is no admonition to love yourself. Because that's what we do naturally as unredeemed and unregenerate people. We primarily focus on ourselves. So with that being said, you look at the Ten Commandments, and Christ illustrated this. The first Half of the Ten Commandments focus on how to love God. Keep the Sabbath. Don't have any other idols before you. Nothing should compromise your worship, your affection, your love for Jehovah. The second half of the Ten Commandments focus on what? Your neighbor. Because I promise you, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to commit adultery with their spouse. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet what they had to the extent that you would steal it from them. Right? So Christ is... Absolutely correct. The entire law can be summarized in this principle of loving God and loving others. But it's in that loving others that we put on display our love for God. And more than that, we put on display the love of God itself. 
So when Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. What are your good works? Your sanctified and holy life. You're reflecting the character and nature of God himself in a lost and dark world. What will happen? People will see you and say, your God is not like my God. I want to know him. See, the God I follow, whether it's made by human hands, crafted out of stone or wood, or in today's world, crafted by humanistic philosophy that elevates man as a deity. So whether it's an idol or ideology, Man's bent is always to worship someone other than the Creator. This is the story and lesson of Paul in Romans chapter 1. But you and I have been humbled and realize we can do no good thing to merit the favor and mercy of God and receive the work of Christ on our behalf. Have the capacity to now reflect His love in this world and point to the greater message of the gospel itself. See, when the world looks at our lives, and they see that we don't tell the truth at work. Or in the body, we fight among ourselves. There's conflict that's unresolved. There's division. In fact, what does James say in James chapter 4? There's division and factions and fighting among you because you envy. Because you don't have what you want. You want power and prestige or you have what your neighbor wants. You love yourself. And that dedication to loving yourself results in division and faction within the church. What does the world say when they see that? What do they call us? Hypocrites. We all know. We've heard it. We've all heard that. And they're right. I believe the number one obstacle to lost men and women accepting and being open to the gospel is the hypocrisy of our own lives. And it's because we are compromising the mission that God has given us. Now, I described the mission given to the nation of Israel. Do you know that mission statement is repeated to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2? Israel was not faithful to its mission. It embraced idolatry and it could no longer testify the true God. God has called us out of his church and he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, now you are to be priests. You are to be a holy people. So the way that we live in this world is an opportunity for us to demonstrate the character and nature of God. Okay? Now that was all background to make a few points here. Okay? I wanted to give you a theological framework for it. If God is sovereign and He's designed for you to be a school teacher, has created a unique opportunity or platform and sphere of relationship and context of community for you, do you think it's by accident? Not at all. Not at all. See, the question you need to ask, just like that 21-year-old college graduate, is what has God put into my life? What are the opportunities? What are the positions and and, uh, roles that he's granted to me that I must ask this question? How can I practice good deeds, reflect the character and nature of God in this world so that those I encounter will say, I want to know your God and come to glorify him. This is what the reformers referred to as the doctrine of vocation. Let me just give you a few comments. W.R. Forrester, professor at St. Andrews University, made this observation. He said, this idea of vocation or the calling has no more than the name in common with that which is called so today. The idea of the calling has been degraded so disgracefully into something quite trivial. It has been stripped of its daring and liberating religious meaning to such an extent 
and has been made so ordinary and commonplace that we might even ask whether it would not be better to renounce it altogether. Think about it. How do we use the word vocation today? This means our job. And so we think about it in a very limited sense. We don't have a biblical and historical understanding of what is meant by vocation. Forster goes on, on the other hand, this concept of vocation is a concept which in its scriptural sense is so full of force and so pregnant in meaning that to renounce this expression would mean losing a central part of the Christian message. We must not throw it away, but we must regain its original meaning. Gene Veith at World Magazine said this, vocation has become just another common term for job, as in vocational training or vocational education. The term, though, is a theological word reflecting a rich body of biblical teaching about work, family, society, and the Christian life. The term vocation comes from the Latin word for calling. The doctrine of vocation is thoroughly biblical, as shall be seen, but as with other scriptural teachings, it surfaced and was developed with its greater rigor during the Reformation. All right. Douglas Sherman, who's professor at St. Olive College, helps us with this observation. He says, in the Bible, vocation has two primary meanings. The first and by far more prevalent meaning is the call to become a member of the people of God and to take up the duties that pertain to membership. The Puritans refer to this as God's general calling. Luther referred to it as God's spiritual calling. This calling is a heavenly calling. It's a holy calling. It is the call all Christians have in common, a call to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. So what these men are saying is we all share a common calling, a calling to salvation and to sanctification something we all share in the body of Christ. But, Sherman goes on, the second meaning of calling in Scripture is God's diverse and particular callings, special tasks, offices, or places of responsibility within the broader society. Luther referred to this as God's external calling, and the Puritans referred to this as God's particular calling. So, Gordon Smith says, if a vocation represents a call of God to serve him in the world, then that vocation is sacred because it comes from God. It therefore makes no sense to speak of a secular vocation. Such a phrase is a contradiction in terms. A vocation, because it comes from God, is sacred. Now, I don't know if you think about your career, your job, the multiple roles that you might possess as sacred callings, but they are. See, if God is sovereign, then every one of those is a God-given role and responsibility. He values it. You should as well. Now, let's t- look at one key text that the Reformers focused on. That was in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there with me. I want to illustrate to you where you see the use of these two terms, or these two interpretations of the word calling here, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The context here. Chapter 6 and later in chapter 7 is the context of relationships. Right relationships. Relationships that are focused on not seeking self-interest, but the interest of others. Loving relationships. The immediate context is even talking about marriage. But in chapter 7, verse 17, we read this. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called while he was already circumcised, meaning he was a Jew? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision, meaning he is a Gentile? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. 
But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. It returns to this thought. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. What do we see in this text? Two different uses of the Greek word klesis for calling. Here Paul uses this word klesis in two different ways. One is the call to fellowship with Christ, salvation and sanctification. And it is a call that meets people in diverse circumstances of life, as married or unmarried, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. The other use of the word identifies these circumstances themselves as callings, the roles and features of a life that the Lord has assigned to each individually. Luther emphasized that one individual may hold several roles at the same time. A man may be a father, a son, a brother, a shopkeeper, a citizen, and a church member. All at the same time. All of these are the particular calling that God has appointed for that man. Vocation was not limited to one position of employment. So what we understand theologically is there is the general call to salvation and sanctification. But there's a particular call to a unique place of service and ministry in this world to function in your priestly role. Gordon Smith went on to say, the priesthood of all believers turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. Every kind of work, including what had been looked down upon, the work of peasants and craftsmen, became an occasion for priesthood, for exercising a holy service to God and to one's neighbor. Well, it's exciting then as we think about how do we demonstrate the character and nature of God in our assigned callings? Well, let me give you a few examples that I've encountered recently with some folks. Let me start with some young folks who are in the room as an example. Maybe a high school student is here. I was working with some college students who um, knew that God wanted them to be faithful to get out in the community and do evangelism and, and be a witness. And they came to me and asked, well, what could we do? And I said, well, what I know about you guys is you love to ride skateboards. And you're good at it. The technical skill, the stunts that you can do, you're really good at it. I have an idea for you. There's a skate park that just opened up in town. Why don't you go over there and ride your boards and just see what happens? Okay? Pray that God would lead. They said, okay. So they went over to the skate park, started riding around, and they realized that there was a large group of junior high boys out there. Now, these junior high boys were pretty impressed with these college-age guys and the stunts and, and things that they could do. So they approached them. And these junior high kids said, hey, would you be willing to teach us some of those technical stunts? And the college students, thinking in terms with regard to their mission in the world and, and vocation, said, okay, we'll teach you our stunts if, when we're done, you'll sit down and let us talk to you. Junior high kids, sure, we'll do that. That doesn't cost us anything. So these college-age guys went on for about two hours teaching these junior high kids all kinds of tricks and stunts. Had a great time. They were having a blast. And when they were done, the junior high kids sat down with them. And these guys just began to tell them about Christ. Well, those guys went back to the skate park the next week, and the junior high kids were there. And they made the same deal with them. 
We'll teach you our tricks and stunts. If you'll sit down, let us talk to you when we're done. So this went on for three weeks. At the end of it, they made an agreement that they would come back every week. And these college students ended up starting a Bible study. They didn't call it that, but they started a Bible study with these junior high guys. And they began to impart the truth of the gospel in the lives of these young boys. You know what's so fun? Is those college guys came back to me and they said, we never imagined riding a skateboard could be used for the gospel. See, what they had in their mind is, and we've done this in the church unintentionally, but we create programs within the church for everything that we do. Well-intentioned. But these guys, these college students, understood evangelism as something you came to the church to do on Thursday nights. And you went out in the neighborhood and you knocked on doors. That's what evangelism was. They weren't even thinking about how to use riding a skateboard to make relationships and to be intentional in those relationships to share Christ. And I'll never forget these guys coming back and saying, this is so great. Are you sure this is okay for us to do? (laughs) They felt guilty about that because they had this expectation that this is the only way the church does ministry. Here's another example. There's a gal named Rebecca. And uh, she was also a senior at the college. She was a piano performance major. And Rebecca was very talented. Sweet girl. She um, got married her senior year. And her and her husband uh, decided that while she finished up her school year, they should set apart some time on Fridays, two hours on Fridays, to do something with regard to outreach and witness. She had no idea what to do. And so we were discussing this, and she said, can you give me any ideas? Are there any places I could go? I said, well, Rebecca, let's stop and ask a question. Who has God made you to be? What do you love to do? I said, you're a piano performance major, aren't you? She said, yeah. I said, you're pretty good, aren't you? She she was humble and wouldn't answer my question, but she said, I love to play. I said, well, let me ask you a second question. What kind of people do you care about? She said, well, I really, really care about elderly people. I'd love to do something to serve elderly people. I said, okay. I said, here's an idea for you. What if you go down to the local convalescent home? And I guarantee you they got a multi-purpose room in there with a piano that's not being played. I said, try something. Find the director or manager of that convalescent home and ask if you could get permission to come on Fridays during that window of time uh, that you set aside to just play the piano. And she said, well, okay. So she came back the next week. She goes, you're not going to believe it. She said the director of the convalescent home said no one's ever come to her, especially a college student, and asked if they could get involved in some way. She said she was so excited that I was there, she told me to start playing right away. Okay, so I walked down to the multi-purpose room and I sat down at the piano and she goes, I decided to start playing some hymns. So she started playing a medley of hymns and sure enough, she could hear the walkers and the wheelchairs and the room began to fill up with these elderly people. And she began to play these medleys of hymns and in between just began to talk about her love for Christ. She came back a couple weeks later and she goes, I never thought I could use playing the piano to advance the gospel. See, we've made it so difficult for people We've created so many programs that most lay people sitting in the pews today aren't even thinking in terms of how to steward their talents and their gifts and abilities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Rebecca put on display? A genuine heart of mercy and compassion for those who were infirmed and sick and elderly. Doesn't that sound like Christ? Matter of fact, when you look at the text of Matthew 5 that we were in, if you go back to chapter 4, it says Christ was going from village to village, proclaiming the gospel and doing what? Healing the sick and ministering to the poor. 
You know, Christ could validate his deity in, in a lot of ways. He could demonstrate his power as God. He could have looked at those mountains and moved them like he said to his disciples later on. But he didn't. Christ could have overthrown the Roman government with just the words of his mouth, but he didn't. What did Christ choose to do? He chose to reach out to those who were in crisis, those who were less advantaged, those people who were in need. And by the way, it's people in crisis who ask eternal questions. Isn't that true? You lose your job? You lose your house to a fire? Your child is diagnosed with a terminal disease? A spouse walks out on you? What kind of questions do you begin to ask? God, is there a God? Does he care about me? Why am I on this planet? And particularly if you're facing death due to that crisis, you're asking What's going to happen to me when I die? Now, dear friends, the challenge of today's evangelical church is we have attempted to build our churches with a gospel of comfort and ease, saying we're going to cater to all your whims to get you into the doors of the church. And we have rebranded the call of Christ from a call of discipleship that begins with carrying your cross and dying to yourself to one that comes about serving yourself. And as an effect of that, the church today in America is running away from people in crisis. Because people in crisis are a threat. And they're going to demand things of me. And it's going to be uncomfortable. I don't want to work with homeless people. They scare me. So today's church and today's church members are running in the opposite direction of where Christ ran. Christ laced up his sandals and he walked the dusty paths of Palestine and called his disciples to come with him. And what? He sought those who were in need in crisis. Why? Because the message of the gospel is a message of mercy, compassion, and grace to those who are undeserving, who can't reciprocate God's love. Romans 5.8 says to us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had nothing to give back to him. So how can a Christian best practically demonstrate that kind of love? by getting down and serving somebody who can't give you any personal benefit. So we need to be looking for people in our community and in our world who need somebody to come and advocate on their behalf. Matter of fact, the word poor used in the Old and New Testament and all the commands to care for the poor, the widows, orphans, all that, the word for the poor actually means those who are dependent upon the mercy of somebody else just for life. Now, doesn't that describe our spiritual condition? We are fully dependent upon the mercy of God to redeem us. We have nothing to offer him. So when Christ proclaimed the gospel and he chose to demonstrate his power, he chose to demonstrate in a particular way, in a way that illustrated the character and nature of God. You might say we have the chance to live our lives as living parables. And so your vacation becomes a platform. Let me tell you two other examples as we wrap up. We work with a ministry in Los Angeles called World Impact. World Impact has been around for about 25 years, and they seek to uh, evangelize and minister to those who live in the projects down in Watts in south central Los Angeles. Notorious gang neighborhoods. 
they decided one of the things they wanted to do to bless the families in the inner city was to start a Christian school. So they recruited a whole bunch of teachers who raised their support as missionaries. And they went in and built a Christian school in South Central Los Angeles. Now these folks on missionary salaries didn't have a lot of extra money around. But they wanted to do their work with excellence to the glory of God. And they knew one of the things these kids would need to break the cycle of poverty would be to be able to get into college and get a job that would require computer skills. They had absolutely no resources, financial resources, to build a computer lab. But that was their vision. Well, one of the supporting churches of World Impact in our area had a gentleman who worked for IBM. And he heard about this vision to open a computer lab for these inner city kids. And he began to ask this question because he understood this doctrine of vocation. What can I do from my unique platform to advance the gospel of Christ? And he realized IBM, due to the tax benefit, made charitable contributions to community service organizations all the time. They pat themselves off on the back, they get a tax break, and you know they're happy. But this redeemed man who worked for IBM realized here's an opportunity to do something unique. So he went to his boss and said, would IBM be willing to donate 20 new PCs to set up this inner city computer lab? That was nothing to IBM. They said, absolutely, we'd be glad to do that. So this man arranged for those computers to be donated to World Impact. But not just that. He went down and got others from his church to set up the entire network. And not just that. They started volunteering their time as tutors and mentors in that computer lab for those kids. That's an example of how any one of you could ask the question, what could I do in a unique fashion to support the work of the gospel in this community or around the world? Did God ordain for that man from eternity past to have a passion and a love for computer technology and get an education and get a job at IBM that had a social policy that allowed them to make charitable contributions? Absolutely. But if that man wasn't thinking in terms of his mission in this world and the responsibility to steward his vocation for the gospel, and he only went to work every day to pull a paycheck, he would have missed out on being used by God in such a strategic way. And I'll end with this example of a friend named Greg Nakamura. Greg worked for Blue Cross Insurance, a national insurance company. Greg headed up their fraud division. Believe it or not, people file fraudulent claims against insurance. So they have a huge fraud division, and what they have to do is investigate these fraudulent claims. They have to um, uh, report what is accurate, and they have to deal with the legal side of things to deal with uh, all these claims. So Greg was very experienced in this issue of dealing with the legal side of um, uh, fraudulent claims. Well, he had some friends who went to Thailand who had a passion to rescue children who were being trafficked into prostitution. And Greg went to visit them. And Greg was moved by God to resign from his position at Blue Cross and go and join them in this ministry in Thailand. One of the things that this ministry needed to do was to work with churches up in the tribal areas where they were trafficking children from Burma into these mountain areas and then bringing them into the cities uh, and selling them and trafficking them. They didn't know how they could advocate and, and rescue these children. But Greg was able, because of his training at Blue Cross, to construct an entire division for a ministry called Zoe International that does child rescue. And he applied everything that he learned in his division at Blue Cross with regard to the legal aspect of exposing fraud and crime to now child rescue 
and dealing with traffickers. I had the great pleasure in January to go to Thailand with Greg. And we spent an evening at their orphanage where there are now 250 children that have been rescued from child prostitution and trafficking. And I sat there with tears in my eyes as these children stood up and gave testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they shared scripture passages that talked about Christ and his love for them and for children. And I had such a blessing uh, of time with them just as they surrounded me and just began to kind of express God's love. And you ask the question, where were those kids have been if Greg hadn't followed God's particular call in his life? Do you think those days he went to work at Blue Cross, he had any idea he'd end up in the mountains of Thailand rescuing children for the sake of the gospel? No. But what I want you to understand is God is sovereign. And we don't always know his purposes and plans. But it may be wherever he has you as a student, as an employee, as a leader, wherever he has you, if you understand the doctrine of vocation and God's call upon your life and his mission in this world, then you begin to ask the question, how do I steward what I have in a way that can practice good deeds, represent the character and nature of God, so that those who are lost can come to glorify the Father? Well, I took a few extra minutes, and I appreciate your patience with me, but let me pray for us, because this is the work of God in our lives. Father, I pray for these dear people. Give them a, a new and fresh perspective on your work your sovereign work in their lives. Help them to ask and answer in faith the question, how could you use me and my unique abilities and resources and and passions for the kingdom? And God, I pray that we would awake every day with an enthusiasm and excitement and a curiosity about how we can be used by you. Lord, may we be a people who bring glory to you and function as priests in this world. Do your work in us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you so much. The Lord bless you.